Hello, everyone. I'm Warren Smith in Charlotte, North Carolina. And I'm Natasha Smith coming to you from Colorado Springs, Colorado. We'd like to welcome you to the Ministry Watch podcast. Each week, Ministry Watch brings you news about Christian ministries, as well as the latest in charity and philanthropy. News that we examine from a Christian worldview perspective. Our goal is to help us become better stewards of the resources God has entrusted to us. On today's program, Trouble in Paradise, Canacook Camps, the beautiful Missouri camps that host 20,000 kids a year, is rocked by a sex abuse and financial scandal. And Franklin Graham is taking heat from some of his staunchest supporters for encouraging them to get the COVID vaccine. We begin today with a billionaire Christian investor who rattled Wall Street this week and caused a lot of Christian ministries to wonder what the future holds. Yeah, nobody is quite sure how much the money maven and Christian philanthropist Sung Kuk Huang, better known as Bill Huang, was actually worth before his over-leveraged empire suddenly and dramatically ran out of cash this week. Could have been $10 billion, some I guess even $20 billion. But now banks around the world that helped underwrite his growth say that they may have lost billions of dollars after his empire collapsed uh, really pretty much before people's eyes this week. A Bloomberg article entitled, One of the World's Greatest Hidden Fortunes is Wiped Out in Days, says that Bill Huang and his company are at the center of a multi billion dollar fiasco involving secretive market bets that were dangerously leveraged and unwound in a blank. One veteran investment expert summed up the meltdown this way. He said, this has to be one of the greatest single losses of personal wealth in history. Now, Warren, I can see why this is a really fascinating business story, but why do you cover it for Ministry Watch? Well, because I haven't told you sort of the rest of the story, and that is that Bill Huang and his philanthropic foundation, the Grace and Mercy Foundation, are among the nation's largest contributors to Christian ministries. Oh, wow. That's beginning to make sense then. Yeah, Huang is a trustee at Fuller Seminary, and the Grace and Mercy Foundation in 2018 had an income of about $50 million. That income was on nearly $500 million in assets. They donated about $17 million that year to dozens of evangelical organizations. In fact, I've heard numbers that range from 50 to 60 a year that get significant amounts of money from the Grace and Mercy Foundation. They included a two million dollar gift to Fuller, a five and a half million dollar gift to the Fuller Foundation, and gifts to the Museum of the Bible, Salvation Army, Young Life, Navigators, Focus on the Family, the Luis Palau Association, Prison Fellowship. I could keep going on and on, Natasha, but I think you get the message. A lot of groups. So what's going to happen now? I mean, will these ministries have to give back the money? Well, almost certainly not. And the foundation has enough assets that it will likely be able to continue giving for the foreseeable future. But this story is far from over. And these global banks that lost all those billions of dollars are not going to just say, oh, well, them's the breaks. Uh, and and then go home. Uh, They're going to try to recover as much of their money as they can and as many ways as they can. Uh, That could mean at least trying to claw back money from the foundation. Though, let me say again, that's probably not going to happen, but it 
could create some anxiety, at least for a while. Well, it sounds like the the bottom line here, as the financial folks like to say, is that this story is really far from over. Yeah, that's right. And by the way, if you're really interested in this kind of story, I recommend reading Steve Raby's account on our Ministry Watch website this week. I've got to say that everyone from Christianity Today to the Washington Post to Bloomberg covered this story. In fact, I was quoted in the Washington Post story. But I think Steve Raby's explanation of what happened here is one of the clearest and most concise that I've read anywhere. Now, another big story this week involves Kamakuk Camps, one of the largest Christian camps in the nation. Each summer, more than 20,000 kids from ages 7 to 17 pay thousands of dollars uh, each to stay at the camp. And some of the most prominent leaders of the evangelical world have worked at this camp and with its leaders, Joe and Debbie Joe White. Uh, but all is not well there. So what can you tell us? Well, a new website called factsaboutcanacook.com claims that, uh, and I'm quoting here, Canacook's reputation and reach conceals a dark secret. For decades, Joe White and other camp leaders knew about and facilitated sexual abuse among scores of children. Now, the website, which went live last Saturday, includes links to court documents for six lawsuits in which Canacook and senior staff members, including Joe White, were named as defendants. The website maintains that non-disclosure agreements and significant financial settlements have concealed the truth in order to preserve a ministry brand and an economic engine. Now, just from the very few documents that have been released, we know that around 60 children uh, were sexually abused at Canacook. Wow, that's absolutely tragic. Now, you also wrote a story about the finances of the camp and the camp's leaders, Joe and Debbie Joe White. Yeah, Canico Camps and related nonprofit organizations brought in about $35 million in 2018. So that gives you an idea of sort of the scope of the organization. It had a profit. Now, this is a nonprofit organization, keep in mind, an organization that's supposed to be spending all of its money on ministry. It had a profit, revenue over expenses of $8 million in that one year alone. Now, and according to our analysis of the Form 990s from Canacook, from just 2014 to 2018, that's just a five-year period, Joe and Debbie Joe White received payments from Canacook that included salary, rent payments for real estate that they owned, and other compensation. Every Each and every year, they got at least $500,000. Some years, they got more than $700,000. Well, this too is an ongoing story. So what what's happening now? Well, the Facts About Canacook website also has a petition drive demanding that individuals and families who have settled with the camp be released from their non-disclosure agreements or similar clauses in other agreements. That petition, uh, in less than a week, has garnered more than 2,000 signatures, and it's likely that other victims will now find their courage and come forward. I got to tell you, uh, Natasha, that I've been covering these kinds of cases for a long time, and that's a usual pattern. It usually takes just a few victims being willing to speak up, and then others discover that they can too. Well, what about Canacook itself? What what will happen there? 
Well, I can't predict the future and say what will happen, but I can say what I think should happen. Uh, the senior leadership knew what was going on there at with at least one of these abusers, a man named Pete Newman, for at least six years before they fired him. Now, that kind of behavior is just completely unconscionable in a Christian nonprofit, especially one that works with kids. Joe White and Debbie Joe White should resign immediately at a minimum, in my opinion. Also, the board structure at Canacook is far from a best practice. They have just seven board members for an organization that does $35 million in revenue, and three of those seven board members are white family members, Joe White, Debbie Joe White, and their son is also on the board. A fourth board member is the COO, the chief operating officer at Canacook. In short, they don't have an independent board, and that needs to change too. Anything else? Well, an analysis of the financial statements that we did here at Ministry Watch, along with the assistance of the Trinity Foundation in Dallas, uh, found that when you add up all that money that I mentioned a little bit earlier, the whites got more than $2.6 million just in a five-year period. Now, such payments may not be illegal, but they are unusual. Uh, Canacook charges big money to kids and their families to stay there. Usually they stay for two-week sessions. They cost at least $2,500 for those two-week sessions. Canacook also raises millions of dollars more on top of the camp fees. Uh, the camp is making millions, as I said, and now we know so are the whites. Donors deserve to know that. Well, Warren, we need to take a break here, but when we return, Franklin Graham advocates for the COVID vaccine, but some of his evangelical supporters blast him for it. I'm Natasha Smith, along with my co-host Warren Smith. We'll be back after this short break. Hello, everyone. I'm Brittany with Save the Storks. Save the Storks is a pro-life ministry passionate about inspiring the world to reimagine the pro-life movement by serving and valuing every life. Save the Storks partners with pregnancy centers all across the U.S. to own and operate a stork bus to offer free ultrasounds and pregnancy tests to women in unplanned pregnancies. Stork buses park near college campuses, abortion clinics, shopping centers, and serve rural communities that lack medical care. Save the Storks is pleased to be the sponsor of the Ministry Watch podcast. For more information about our life-saving organization and how we partner with pregnancy resource centers around the country, go to savethestorks.com. That's savethestorks.com. Welcome back. I'm Natasha Smith, along with my co-host, Warren Smith, and you're listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Now, let's continue with the story of Franklin Graham and his support of the COVID vaccine. Yeah, Franklin Graham is the head of Samaritan's Purse and the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. He leads both those organizations, and he's taking heat for posting on Facebook that people should get the COVID vaccine. Well, this pushback is a reflection of attitudes among evangelicals. Yeah, it is. A poll that was released on March 24th, so what, a little over a week ago now, uh, revealed a deep divide among evangelicals about the vaccine. Um, many of them are just suspicious. Only 54% of white evangelicals definitely or probably plan to get vaccinated. That's the lowest for any religious group in the U.S. And you can see that controversy on Graham's Facebook page uh, with about 23 
thousand comments, um, sort of glomming onto that post, and nearly ten thousand shares. Wow, those are huge numbers. Yeah, but they didn't phase Graham. Uh, I and, and I'm quoting here from Graham. I can't say anything without getting blowback from somebody. The left will blow back. The right will blow back. The only way to make everybody happy is just to keep your mouth shut. And I'm not very good at that. Uh, I should add, by the way, Natasha, that I got my second vaccine a couple of days ago myself. Well, our next story is an update on the controversies regarding race and critical race theory in the Southern Baptist Church. Yeah, the African-American caucus within the Southern Baptist Convention has asked its denomination's seminary presidents to do more to address continuing tensions about racism and critical race theory. The denomination's Council of Seminary Presidents issued a statement back in November, we reported on it then, declaring the that the academic theory that examines systemic racism called critical race theory is not compatible with the denomination's statement of faith. And since that time, there have been statements and counterstatements and continuing questions back and forth about how Southern Baptists will deal with this issue. But on March 24th, the National African American Fellowship released their latest statement, and it said that the Council of Seminary Presidents' statement has the effect of delegitimizing and dismissing the lived experiences of African Americans and other ethnic groups. The African American group then listed requests of the seminary presidents, including joint forums on what they call biblical approaches to addressing systemic racism in our institutions, organizations, and churches. But I should add that even this African American fellowship agreed that critical race theory should not be taught in Southern Baptist seminaries. Well, Warren, we're going to take another quick break here, but when we return, our weekly lightning round of ministry news. I'm Natasha Smith with my co-host Warren Smith. More in a moment. Hello, everyone. I'm Brittany with Save the Storks. Save the Storks is a pro-life ministry passionate about inspiring the world to reimagine the pro-life movement by serving and valuing every life. Save the Storks partners with pregnancy centers all across the U.S. to own and operate a stork bus to offer free ultrasounds and pregnancy tests to women in unplanned pregnancies. Stork buses park near college campuses, abortion clinics, shopping centers, and serve rural communities that lack medical care. Save the Storks is pleased to be the sponsor of the Ministry Watch podcast. For more information about our life-saving organization and how we partner with pregnancy resource centers around the country, go to savethestorks.com. That's savethestorks.com. Welcome back. I'm Natasha Smith, along with my co-host, Warren Smith, and you're listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Now, Warren, we like to use this last little segment as a sort of lightning round for shorter news briefs. So what do you have? Well, first of all, Turning Point USA, an advocacy organization founded by the conservative activist Charlie Kirk, has unveiled a new education initiative that he says promises an America-first education for educators and homeschool parents. 
parents. In fact, he's rolling it out mostly in Christian schools and the homeschool community at first. The website and the initiative is called Turning Point Academy, and they'll release materials this fall for K-12 students that focus on our founding principles, the Constitution, and economics. Some of our listeners may remember that Charlie Kirk recently left the Fall Kirk Center, uh, which is an organization that he had co-founded at Liberty University. In fact, Liberty University actually shut down the Fall Kirk Center. Now, Kirk is planning to start Turning Point Faith, which will recruit religious leaders to participate in various political actions. Next up, we've been covering COVID impact on churches since the very beginning of the pandemic, and new data suggests that the impact could outlast the pandemic itself. Yeah, the percentage of Americans who are members of a house of worship dropped below 50% for the first time in eight decades last year. Uh, When I say the first time in eight decades, that goes up back to the very beginning of when the Gallup organization started measuring uh, church attendance and church worship. Although the Gallup survey found that the United States does remain in many ways a religious nation, with more than 7 in 10 Americans citing some type of affiliation with organized religion, only 47% said they belong to a specific church, synagogue, or mosque. U.S. church membership was 73% when Gallup first started measuring this back in 1937, and it remained near 70% for the next 60 years. It was only within the last 20 years or so that we started seeing this pretty steep decline. By 2018, the number dropped to 50%, and of course, now we're below the 50% level. I should say it's important to note, though, that COVID is not probably the main reason for the decline in religious affiliation. Uh, Since, as I mentioned, this trend actually started about 20 years ago. Other causes include a general skepticism about all institutions in American life, including churches. And Warren, who's in the ministry spotlight this week? Well, for the past month, we've been uh, turning increased scrutiny uh, towards the Bible translation industry. It's a ministry segment that takes in more than $400 million a year and is not very transparent in its structure. I'm not saying that there's anything illegal about what's going on in the Bible translation world, but it is an industry that has fallen into some bad practices when it comes to governance and transparency, and they need new accountability structures and greater transparency. So this week, we have another Bible translation organization in our ministry spotlight. It's called The Seed Company, which was founded in 1993. The Seed Company has nearly $60 million in annual revenue and spends about 11% of its income on fundraising. The Seed Company does not file a Form 990 with the IRS, which we think is a problem, though it's actually not uncommon for organizations in the Bible translation industry. In fact, it's one of the practices that we here at Ministry Watch hope to cover more extensively and hopefully to change in the months ahead. And finally, who are you highlighting in ministries making a difference? 
Well, this week, Christina Darnell highlights Medical Teams International and Food for the Hungry, who are partnering to provide medical care for victims of a massive fire that ravaged the world's largest refugee camp in Bangladesh last week. Medical teams estimate that some 10,000 Rohingya refugee families, approximately 45,000 people, were displaced by the fire. It killed at least five people and destroyed shelters and health facilities that were used by many thousands there. Now, closer to home, stateside, an organization called Tent Schools International, which is a Christian organization focusing on compassionate education alternatives for refugee children around the world, is actually now working here in the U.S. They're supporting refugee children settled that have settled in West Michigan by supplying them with recycled computers. Well, Warren, these ministries making a difference updates are really amazing and inspiring, but they often feature really big ministries involved in important but really expensive projects. So do you have any news that the average listener could hear and say, oh, I could do that? Yeah, you know, it's a great question because that's really why we share a lot of the good news we share. So people might say, hey, you know, maybe I could do that locally as well. And I I think a really great example of that was also in Christina Darnell's column this week. It's the story of Welcome House Knoxville, which was founded just a couple of years ago in 2019 to provide temporary housing, once again, for refugee and immigrant families in the Knoxville area. Uh, through connections with Bridge Refugee Services and the Knoxville International's Network. And I know lots of cities have very similar organizations. We certainly do here in Charlotte. Uh, Recently, they housed an Iraqi refugee family of seven whose house had been destroyed by a kitchen fire. Uh, The ministry said that its mission is to share the love of Jesus through ministries of hospitality and friendship by providing safe and loving homes for individuals and families in transit to permanent housing. Now, Love World, which is a ministry of a local Baptist church there, Wallace Memorial Baptist Church, actually supports this ministry by volunteering supplies and cleaning services. So, Natasha, how's that for a go-and-do-likewise kind of story? I love that. That's what I'm talking about. Well, Warren, we have to bring today's uh, program to a close. The producers for today's program are Rich Rosal and Steve Gandy. We get database and other technical support from Kathy Guttard, Stephen DeBerry, and Casey Suddeth. Writers who contributed to today's program include Rod Pitzer, Jack Jenkins, Adele Banks, Ann Stike, Yunat Shimran, Steve Raby, and you, Warren. And thanks to our friends at the Nonprofit Times for contributing materials to this week's program. I'm Natasha Smith in Colorado Springs, Colorado. And I'm Warren Smith coming to you from Charlotte, North Carolina. And you've been listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Until next time, may God bless you. 